What's happening? Good morning. It's August 7th, and this is Water's Edge Church. My name is Andy Kelly. Hope you're doing well. And uh, before we start, I just wanted to give uh, just a quick invitation just to support the movement. We are Water's Edge Church. You can give online at thewatersedgechurch.org slash give. And I just want to take a moment to ask everybody to support it because of your giving uh, and the giving of so many, we're able to hire a part-time children and families pastor. We're able to see many people be baptized, explore more ministries, and in September, go to Catalina together. So if you call this home, we'd ask that you would, would give monthly. And uh, we believe in the biblical tithe. We don't think Jesus came to abolish it. We believe that consistent, faithful giving is a sign of maturity and freedom. It says that we're free from our attachments. And it's the heartbeat that fuels the life of generosity. We don't stop at 10. Now, a lot of people get anxiety around that number 10. And perhaps the cost of living or bills or wanting to save for something one day. I would just say consider giving a percentage of your income, knowing that there's true abundance in the kingdom of God. Consider giving five. And I think another question people have, well, can my tithe go elsewhere? Yeah, talk with God about it. Discern, listen, respond. I don't want to force your hand, and I'm certainly not God. But if this is your home, I, Andy, not God, am asking you to invest in your home. And of course, uh, no one should pay to come to church. You shouldn't pay to listen to this. If you're just a guest here or checking us out online, I ask you not to give. We ask you not to give. And of course, any giving should be fueled by God's love. 2 Corinthians 9.7 said, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you want to support the movement, if you feel drawn to it, go to thewatersedgechurch.org slash give. So we're continuing, actually concluding um, this mini-series in the larger book of Matthew. Uh, it's called Altar Calling, the World's Need to Respond to the Messiah. It's an ominous conversation about evangelism and the constant call to always revere Christ as Lord as Peter says in his first epistle, and, and be prepared to give anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared to give anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, doing so, of course, with gentleness and respect. Simply stated, Jesus said to his first disciples that alongside a life of serving and prayer and healing, that you proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. God is here bringing death to life. Some conversations we've had in Matthew 10 was just, what does it look like to evangelize? Who, when, where, what, why? What does it mean to say the kingdom of heaven is near? The, the next week we talked about the fears and uncertainties and doubts that others carry, the doubts that we ourselves carry. And the call is to seek to understand them. That's our FUD, our fears, uncertainties, doubts. Two weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be rejected. Rejection is inevitable. What isn't inevitable, but is the call, is to respond still with compassion, with kindness, and of course, joy. Joy that we're giving an opportunity for people to say no to a God that they one day can say yes to. And finally, last week, we took a pause, but it wasn't really a pause. It was a divine interruption to be present to the presence. One of the greatest ways we can evangelize is to not simply speak about what God has done in history, though that matters. The cross, the resurrection, it matters. But also to speak to what God's doing now in the present. We can't do that if we're not present to the presence. 
Jesus says uh, something beautiful at the end of our chapter today, Matthew 13, 52. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, who's like a follower, is like an owner of a house who brings out the storerooms, brings out of his or her storerooms new treasures as well as old. The question is, what if some of the new is what God is doing in your life today? To speak to that, the living God. The title of today's message is Sharing Your Parable. But as we prepare for that, here's a question for you just to consider. How have you shared God's goodness recently? How have you shared God's goodness, his life, his love with others, the truth of who he is and who you are, whose you are? How have you shared about God's goodness recently? If you're not, if you haven't, you can't remember time, maybe just share about God's goodness right now when you speak. Take a moment, and if you're riding with somebody, share that. How have you experienced God's goodness recently? Larry Warner mentioned this last week, St. Francis Assisi, a pretty well-known quote that's commonly attributed to him. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. If necessary. And in addition to St. Francis's gift of mercy, he was a person known for voluntary poverty. He served the poor. He cared about the earth and God's creation. He seeked to establish relations with Muslim communities, men's and women's orders he seeked to establish. He was renowned for preaching to the common man to the common woman, to the common person. He's celebrated for preaching to animals and birds. People knew that because they heard them as he preached. He preached to everyone. He wasn't someone who shared the gospel once in a while. The salvation and love and life of Christ through the Holy Spirit was commonly on his lips. Commonly on his lips. What if? What if? What if a source like St. Francis, who seek to mirror the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus, what if it's a multifaceted challenge? We understand it can be really helpful for those who are a bit too vocal, too bullhorny, those who like to preach like they're above instead of reaching for those below. Stop bullhorning, stop being preachy, love more, show compassion, serve more, and then give God praise and glory. I believe that's how we commonly think about this quote. But when we think about it that way, it can kind of, sort of, possibly give us a pass to almost never say anything at all about God to anyone within our spheres of influence. You know, it's never really necessary. My life, let it preach. Which I'm sure your life is awesome. My life isn't awesome, so it, it needs some words to couple the love of God. Uh, and I think that's it. What if, what if preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words is also an actually is also an invitation to actually use words. Francis dedicated his life to living like Jesus and speaking like Jesus. He modeled kingdom living and kingdom speaking. What if it's an invitation to use words? Now I want you to know about a friend of mine. His name's Charles Chuck Ceballos, who happens to be my brother Greg's cousin, my brother-in-law. Cousin, by the way. And uh, we're nearing uh, 
hopefully nearing the end of a remodel of our home in, in Village Park. And there's a lot of drywall and tile work, just a ton of it. And, and uh, Chucky is the project manager. He's really good at drywall. And his trade now is tile. And his crew are hard workers for sure. Some more hardworking than others, as it goes. Um, but Chucky himself is a very godly man, active father, husband, leader in his church, a lot like many here. And Chuck also gets stressed in his life at times, a lot like many here. And Chuck is also a very joyful guy who loves the Lord, again, like all of us. Chuck is a person whose words of praise and words of encouragement, even words of exhortation or challenge are commonly on his lips with uh, both Christians and pre-Christians alike. Something good happens, praise the Lord. God is good, the Lord provides. Needing help, Lord, I'm trusting God in front of everyone. And that may not be like a lot of us. And you gotta understand, construction is a doggy dog world. It's a doggy dog trade. Is it doggy dog or dog eat dog? Doggy dog or dog eat dog. Filled with strong personalities. And ask Chuck, what's it like to keep speaking about God's goodness, love, life, in the midst of what can be a hostile environment? And he said, well, different guys give me different reactions. Some like it, some are indifferent, some don't believe in God, which I believe is a transition for it. They don't like it, but he doesn't care. <laughs> uh, but we talked about it, and he agreed wholeheartedly that if the Lord is in our soul, why would he not be on our lips, at least some of the time? Moreover, Chuck and I agree that every time we speak about Jesus, it's an opportunity to pull weeds and plant seeds. To pull weeds of who God is not, of who we are not, of what the life is not, and to plant seeds of who God is and who we are and what life is. I think the follow-up question is simply this. What, what do I share? What do we share? What do we share? And Today's reading, the parable of the sower, which is found in Matthew's gospel, the capstone of the third teaching, actually helps us understand a lot about what we can share. See, evangelism, faith, Jesus, these are not simply a few Bible verses or some simplistic bridge-like illustration that somehow we need to parrot and repeat. This is about what sharing what God has done and is doing in our life, in the world and in our life. The key is that we have to be aware of what's going on. We have to experience God in order to share. And this requires reflection. And I hope today this parable, which we're about to read, will provide an excellent opportunity to reflect. So as we've noted in the past, there are five large teachings in Matthew. And this parable begins the third, or really is a capstone of the third. And it's the first parable in Matthew and also the very center of Matthew's account. It's the first parable in Mark's account one of the other synoptic, similar seen Gospels. The first Gospel that was written is Mark's. It's one of the seven parables that is told both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Both, I guess, in all Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke uses this parable to understand the four miracles that happens in Luke 8. And in short, this is the first parable that was told by Jesus, or at least recorded. One of two, which he only gives an interpretation of, he tells it and interprets it, and is very likely the most important. So let's read the first section, just to let it wash over us. 
That same day, Jesus went out by the house and sat by the lake. Mark writes, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered around him was so large and he got into a boat and sat in it on a lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. Isn't that kind of cool, water's edge? That's one of the verses that inspires um, just who we are as a church. Verse two, Matthew 13, verse two. Such large crowds around him, such large crowds got around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on shore. I said that. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was gathering seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang out quickly become because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil or produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So let's pause. Many of us are aware of parables, but what is a parable? A parable has many definitions, but a biblical parable is a practical, real-life story that illustrates a central spiritual truth. And of course we want to respond to that truth. But we must be aware that the central idea or truth is more important than to press every symbol within a parable for distinct meaning. At the, at the risk of sounding redundant, a common mistake is trying to get absolute meaning from every single aspect of the parable. Is my bird, or is the bird of my life my boss who's eating me alive? Is my marriage or singleness in rocky soil? Those questions may be fairly important, but are besides the point. The central idea is more important than trying to press any symbol for meaning. It's also helpful to understand that there's mystery in parables, a certain hiddenness in them, a lack of mindless precision, just tell me what to do, God, or excessive decisiveness. This is it and this is only it. It provides an opportunity for the hearer to reflect. And God uses these and other parables uh, to help us to discern. And Mark's gospel, Jesus ends the saying, saying, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, which he gives them, how will you understand all other parables? He never said anything again like this. He's drawing the hearer to come closer, to understand. This parable is really a parable about parables. It explains other parables. That there's truth to be unearthed as we reflect on the wondrous mystery of this parable and others. What also must be remembered is that Jesus... I'll say that again. We must always remember that Jesus' ministry included announcing an event. The kingdom of heaven is near. He's also said the kingdom of God is upon you. The term kingdom definitely feels a bit ethereal. It seems like everybody talks about it, but we kind of don't know what it means. It's commonly defined, actually, as God's reign and rule in the world and in the hearts or being of people, God's followers. The kingdom is about God's goodness and justice and love and truth entering every pocket, every crevice, slowly pushing out and, and eliminating the hell that lurks within, both in the crevices and corner as well in open settings. It's about life entering the dead places, spaces, and faces. Every one of Jesus' parables is a commentary on Christ's kingdom. The Spirit uses us 
to help us understand the kingdom of God a bit more and our place in it, as well as others. Because on the face of things, a parable like this can feel a bit unimportant. We get it, good soil versus bad soil. We've heard the Sunday school songs, change your heart, that's what you gotta do. Which is actually possibly antithetical to what Jesus, what God's saying through this parable. He's saying whoever has ears, let them hear. Are they receptive to the work of God and to the, the mysterious work that happens when you're in the kingdom? That's Jesus' first parable. This parable is about Jesus' kingdom taking root in our hearts, in the hearts of people who have ears to hear. And the main idea I would contest is this, is that we are God's good and reproductive work that God is carrying to completion. That's main idea, part one. We're God's good work that God is carrying to completion. That the invitation is to take that in, that God is growing us, protecting us, cultivating us, sometimes uprooting aspects of our life so that we can have a fruitful, reproductive life, a naturally and somehow supernaturally fruitful and reproducing life. The challenge also when you hear this is, am I, are we God's good and reproductive work that's carrying, to, that God is carrying to completion? Two of the three sowings that fail describe people who respond positively to the message. They hear the message with joy, but their hearing is superficial. They became a quote Christian for the benefits, friends, fire insurance, socio-political realities, but their life is still their own. The hope is any freedom you and I exhibit that turn to God and ask the question, God, am I yours? I believe that's a wonderful place to be. God's answer is yes, and this conversation is likely a sign that you are God's good work. If you're resistant to that conversation, why? Or if you said yes, Yes to God at some point, but somehow intuitively believe you've got this. I think there's a bit of reflection you may need. Let's look at the parable in total. I'm going to read again. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him, and he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told the many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, and they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell in good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now we've heard that part twice. Let's continue. The disciples came to mass. Why do you speak in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they will have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For the people's hearts become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, and understand 
I'm sorry, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many of the prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears a message about the king and does not understand it, the evil one, the enemy, the devil, comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is a seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once and receives with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling along the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. That's God's word for us. Your life is designed to be God's good and reproductive work that God is carrying to completion. And this is a life. This is something that's worth sharing for others. This is something worth sharing with others. So the question is, what do we share? Well, first we share God's graciousness, God's grace in our lives. We share God's graciousness in our lives. A farmer went out to sow seed. So many times we relegate this parable to good and bad soil. What about this farmer who is so reckless with his seed? As a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright says, Jesus seems to be telling a story in which the farmer is deliberately wasteful, scattering seed everywhere, even on the path beneath his own feet. Why would he spread seed everywhere? This doesn't seem to be good gardening practice. Rather, it seems as though the farmer is being intentionally gracious to even the worst kinds of soil. The farmer is gracious. The farmer has taken the seemingly infected garden garden and spreading seed, trusting that the seeds will reproduce, that's what they do, and will enliven the garden as the farmer, I believe, continues to cultivate it. So the garden is the world and we're the seeds, and the sowing the seed is the proclamation, yes, and the demonstration of Christ's kingdom, of bringing life to death places, of God's graciousness. The question I think we need to consider is, how has, or how is, how has and how is God graciously demonstrating his love and provision in the dead and dying places in your life? How has or God is, how has or how is God graciously demonstrating his loving provision in the dead and dying places in your life? See, I'm, I like to celebrate. I'm very passionate and expressive and to many, it's an endearing quality. For sure it is. But left unchecked, left, my, left to my unhealthy detachment with an unhealthy formation and alcohol and sex, a tendency to check out with an obsessive need for approval and attention, that can wreak havoc. That can wreak havoc. Well, praise the Lord that God has protected me and others by meeting my deepest need for attention attention, approval. God meets my need to celebrate. Is there room to grow? Absolutely. You know me. I got to grow. 
And that's really the second point. We share not only God's graciousness in our lives, but we share what God, the farmer, is cultivating in and through your life. Now, if you study the Old Testament, if you study the biblical apocrypha, those readings somewhere between 400 B.C. and the beginning of the New Testament, and other extra-biblical writings, images of seeds and sowing and failure of crops and fruitful harvests, they're among the most common metaphors to describe the life with its hardships, with its prosperities, its instructions, its judgments and blessings. And rather getting caught up in who is the good soil and therefore who's the bad soil, the mystery lies within the receptivity of the soil and therefore the receptivity of those who are open to hear from Jesus. This is not about fatalism. You're just bad soil and I'm good soil. It's about openness and those who are open and receptive. Moreover, any ancient farmer, any common farmer will be attentive to fruit bearing crops. Any decent farmer cultivates, protects, and sometimes even uproots his or her good work. As you consider the condition of the soil in your life, particularly in this season, what's God up to? How's God cultivating God's good work in your life? How is God's cultivating with donuts? God's cultivating God's good work in your life. It's a little special cameo from my boy Mackie. What's up, Mackie? What up? All right, how's God cultivating God's good work in your life? And again, if you have no care, concern, or desire of what God has done or is presently doing in your life, even if you say it with your lips but really no internal reflection at all, I would lovingly invite you to consider the overall soil of your life and the initial soil that we see in this passage. Point three, what do we share? Well, first point, we share God's graciousness in our life. Second point, we share what the farmer is cultivating in and through your life. And then finally, we share what it looks like for you to naturally reproduce. You know, I read this from a priest this morning and I have no better words. The amazing thing is that our fruit and fruitfulness comes out of our vulnerability and not just our power. And actually, it, it comes out of our powerlessness. If the ground wants to be fruitful, you have to break it open a little bit. The hard ground cannot bear fruit. It has to be raked open. And the mystery is that our illness and our weakness and our many ways of dying are often the ways in which we get in touch with our vulnerabilities. And then it's those vulnerabilities where we're weakest and often most broken and most needy become the grounds of our fruitfulness. It's those places where God can produce a return of 30, 60, even 100. And that's not an exaggeration. That's actually a rather bountiful yield for a single seed. What is God cultivating in your life that is bearing fruit in the dry and hungry places of our world? Rather than me and this message, I wanted to take a moment to hear from Pastor Deb. I wanted you to hear her life and what God has done so that one, you can know her, and two, you can understand a bit of someone sharing their parable, sharing the graciousness of God, what God has cultivated, protected, uprooted in our lives, and how in that weakness, God's able to bear fruit in the hungry and hurting places of our world. Deb's gonna share. 
I was even like, when I was in Annie's preaching, I was like, yeah, that, that's me. I mean, that was, that was great. And that he said something to me that I really hadn't even heard before. So that, that was wonderful. So I just introduced myself a little bit, um, Deb, and I have uh, two sons and four grandkids. Uh, my husband is Rick over here. Um, next month, we celebrate our 48th anniversary. I was married at 10. No. <laughs> so I, I, I have one son that lives here in San Diego, one son that lives in Illinois. Um, I just want to share a little bit about my own personal journey and my walk with Christ and kind of how all that came to be and where I came from. So what kind of soil was my seed uh, scattered on? That's uh, really what we're talking about today. So um, uh, my mom was married four times. I am the product of the second husband. Um, I have six brothers and sisters. One of my sisters is not here. <laughs> um, I have six brothers and sisters. My two youngest brothers um, both have schizophrenia. They struggle with mental illness. My mom's third husband was a drunk. My mom's fourth husband was an abuser. So I kept saying, you know what? I'm sure it was very wrong. For a lot of years, I was drinking. The great thing, I, the picture I think God gave me a long time ago was was so special in my journey. And something I remember and fall back to often is I get this picture of this little girl walking down this really rocky road. It wasn't easy. A lot of times I'm getting tripped up. It was a hard road to walk down. But my vision is that God's hand to work around me. So as I walked that rocky, the road was still rocky. But God was with me. His love, his care, his provision, his protection was still with me as I walked that rocky road. And that is just such an amazing thing when I think about it. I, I have this kind of like, you know, we don't think it's coincidence, right? Well, you know, that was coincidence. I always tell people, pay attention. Pay attention, that's God's working right there. When I was in high school, I walked by my, my counselor's office and she goes, hey, come on in here. I was like, okay. And she goes, do you want a job this summer? And I was like 16 and I was like, well, I'm not looking for a job. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I thought, well, why not? So she said, I was working in North Island. I'm thinking North Island was an air station. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm gonna be like flipping burgers at the diamond or something. Like, I have no idea. This is this a high school student being like, um, but instead, when I went to North Island, I was trained. I went to solder school. I worked on the automatic flight control system for the F-4 Phantoms uh, during the Vietnam War. And so they would come in, we rework them, and they send them back out. I had to go back out. So I worked on those for three summers in a row. I went back in the summer eight, three summers in a row. That job then, when I got married to my husband, um, put him through seminary. Because I was hired right away. Uh, when I went in for a job, I knew it was amazing. So this is just like, hey, come here, you want a job? Okay. Uh, I got that job in North Island. Those seeds that were scattered on that top soil with that rocky soil, I even said, I went on to go to Bible College. I went to Simpson College in San Francisco, finished up at Azusa Pacific. Uh, my husband at Simpson there. I finished my uh, BA in physical literature. I then went and uh, served in various capacities in, in churches with, uh, I was on the worship team at one point, in Sunday school, nursery, VBS, 
Uh, and then I was called into ministry at 35 um, and served there and served there for 35 years uh, at, the, at the same congregation. And my college is really cool because I was also the business administrator at the church. I'm the business admin and children's man. And we got up in our annual meeting and we got to tell like our reports. So I got up and talked about budgets and balance sheets and all that stuff. I'm capable, I can do that stuff. Sat back down and we had to come back up and talk about kids men. And it's this amazing thing. I stood on the stage, I was just flooded with joy. Something came over me. It's like, oh, I got to share about what God was doing among these kids. And when that happened, I went back and sat down, and I said to myself, and I sat down, I go, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I began my journey as a children and family pastor, uh, which I love, and I would love to share part of my vision and mission of how I see kids uniquely formed and created. I would love to share that stuff with you. I went down to, uh, during my time at, at the church, I went on to get my master's degree in uh, children and family ministry, so I have an MA children and family ministry, and then later on my doctorate in strengths-based congregational leadership. My dissertation was strengths-based leadership. Uh, for I did leadership development for 10 to 13-year-olds. So that was kind of what I studied when I was doing my doctorate. I've been teaching at the seminary for 18 years as well. I get to teach children and family pastors uh, in that place. And something I love about that is I get to be fresh in ministry. When you're doing something for so long, 35 years, you're doing something for so long, it's easy to get stale. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I love that I get to still mix it with other children and pastor families in all over the country, which is really cool. I also do some certificate programs. I'm a busy lady, I do things, but I love what I do. I love that I get to speak into the next generation. I love that I get to build up children as leaders who follow Jesus Christ. That's my heart and that's my passion. I am so blessed to be here at Water's Edge. I just, you know, I was saying the other day, I said, God prepared me here. I'm so excited. I love when I walked in the door and I said, this church values kids and family. I love it. It's not just lip service. They don't just say it. They do it. They demonstrate it. Not only how they do their services together, as they do their safe families together, but that's something special. And it fills me. It fills me. I go back to my hands. What began as a painful life and a difficult journey was restored and redeemed for good. And I believe that. God gifted and empowered this broken child to make a difference in the lives of his precious little ones. And for that, I am so blessed and grateful. And I just want to share with you, this is my life verse, and it's really kind of appropriate here to share it with you. I'm going to read it in two different versions. Uh, first in the NIV and then the Message Bible, um, just so you can hear this. So this is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And from the message it says, I just like the message, the how it talked about this, it just resonated with the words. Uh, I am not saying 
that I have this all together, that I have it made, that I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ, who has so wonderfully reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got the eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm often running, and I'm not turning back. Jesus said, Therefore, every teacher of law who became a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out storeroom, new treasures as well as old. You're God's good and reproductive work that God's carrying to completion. Yours is a story worth sharing. Share it. Let's pray. So, Lord, I do come before you knowing that each person here is your wonderful work, your sacred being that you want life and life to the full for. And so if there are people here who have not received that, God, I pray for their openness and your work to meet them, that you would even open them up to what you're doing, Lord. And one of the ways that you can, Holy Spirit, we also pray for others that they would hear the, the challenge and invitation to share their story with others as they hear the stories of those around them. And that you would bear fruit in the ways that you do through love, justice, mercy, and truth. Thank you, God, for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.